Hey, I'm Adam. And I'm Brian. Of Everyone Has a Podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 101, Ishtar Movie Review. I'm Chris McBrien. That's Derek Myers, caveman himself. You'll find us on Twitter at C McBrien for me or at Amaron underscore DM for Derek. You'll find us at popcultureworld.com. And if you like the show, if you're enjoying it, uh, leave us a review on iTunes. We'd obviously really appreciate that. And it certainly helps us out. Uh, Derek, what's going on in the world of pop culture for you this week, my friend? Hey, Chris, how you doing this week? I'm doing. Oh, my goodness. Who is this? Who is this person? It's, this is, it's Caveman. Caveman, you sound great. What's going on? This is uh, this is me on my first recording using the new microphone that you got me during our 100th episode. Yes, of course, the 100th episode where you came up here and uh, got to hang out with me and with my wife and with my kids. And we played Escape from the Death Star. And I gifted you on the show uh, a new microphone and, and a Smokey and the Bandit t-shirt, I, I might add. And uh, so, yeah, it's obviously working good. You sound great. So uh, the, the the studio at home is coming together. Excellent. Yeah, indeed it is. So um, I want to talk to you about a couple of things this week in the world of pop culture. So first and foremost, the movie Avengers Endgame Mm -hmm. starts today. Okay. Officially starts today. My wife and I managed to see a sneak preview last night, and I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, but I'm going to give it two thumbs up, A+. It is outstanding. And in a couple of weeks, we may talk about it again. But if you're a fan of any of the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the MCU, I would strongly recommend that you watch this film. It is fantastic. Unfortunately, though, I guess as far as this podcast goes, you can't nominate this movie for me to watch because I haven't seen any of the others as we brought up on a previous show, causing your wife to like hate me for life. But I've seen none of the uh, MCU movies. So but somebody on Twitter I, I went, kind of asked a question on Twitter and I got lots of really good answers. And somebody was saying, like, this is the order you got to see them in kind of thing. And uh, I'm assuming this would be the very last of them, <laughs> end game. So, uh, yeah, it'll take me a while to, to get up to speed. Like, isn't there like 20 of them or something like that by yeah. now? This this is the uh, the culmination of 22 movies that ends with this one. And let me tell you, there is a absolute complete satisfactory, more than satisfactory ending. Again, I don't want to go into it too much because I know people haven't seen it yet. I certainly don't want to spoil it. But uh, I think in the not too distant future, Chris, we will have to rectify this situation by having you watch uh, some of the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe films. But uh, that's a conversation for another day. So I just want to say A plus, two thumbs up for Endgame. I also want to let you know, mm-hmm. so in the last couple of weeks, uh, I've had a chance to watch a number of documentary films. Oh, good. I like docs too. So I think that uh, I'm going to mention four really briefly, and I think that you would like all of them. So the first one is called New Wave, Dare to be Different. It's from 2017. Mm-hmm. And it is – I'm just going to read you the synopsis here that's on uh, on the IMDb. And it sure. says the, uh, the WLIR crew and the biggest artists of the era tell the story of how – they battled the FCC, the record labels, Mega Radio, and the conventional rules to create a musical movement that brought New Wave to America. So this is all about the 
uh, dawn of the new wave music phenomenon in the late 70s and early 80s and how it was brought to the US and North America. And if you're a fan of that style of music, which I certainly am, this documentary is for you. It is fantastic. There's a lot of guest cameos from uh, 80s artists and musical DJs and other uh, pop culture personalities. It was quite good. It's it's uh, it was really enjoyable. I strongly recommend it. Very cool. Another one I saw was uh, so that one new wave dare to be different from 2017. Okay. Uh, 2014 documentary mm-hmm. I saw is called I Am Evil Knievel. Oh, I've heard about that. So there's a whole series of documentaries. Yeah. I am. I am Paul Walker. I am Chris Farley. I am Richard Pryor. I am Evil Knievel. So this one is from 2014. They're all deceased. It's, deceased celebrities. Is that the idea? Yes. Okay. Yes. And okay. so I, I really I didn't know much about Evil Knievel. I knew he was a daredevil. He rode his motorcycle. He jumped over stuff. That's really all I knew. And did he get his name in prison? Uh, he did. Yeah. There was, yeah. There's a lot of crazy yeah. wackiness going on in his life. Yep. It was. Uh, it was. Uh, and I didn't realize how how old he was like uh, again i always just assumed he was big in like the 70s and 80s but his his daredevil career started a lot earlier than i had any idea of and uh, I, again uh, i really enjoyed it and uh, i i didn't know anything about the end of his life he he passed away not too long ago um I, again i don't want to spoil it cuz i think if people have any interest this is a good one to look up it's called i am evil Knievel, and uh, it it was quite enjoyable yeah, from what I remember, there was like two of them in prison, and the prison guards named them Evil Knievel and Awful Knoffel. And that's where they got these, their names from. So, uh, Third one I saw was uh, a little, little newer from last year, 2018. It mm-hmm. was called The Artists. Uh, let me just read you this one. This is about video games. It's called uh, – oh. the, the synopsis says, The Artists is the story of the creators that were at the forefront of the early video game revolution. The documentary series explores the intersection of creativity and technology of a medium that would go on to redefine pop culture. And it's all about the people that actually created these video games and not just the big companies. But as it turns out, a lot of these creators started their own companies. So it's it talks about the start of Atari and Activision and EA, EA Games. And I'm not a big video game guy, but I just found this – topic fascinating to, to watch and to learn about it was educational i found it was educational the version i saw was about a two-hour um summary but apparently it's a 10-part series so i'm gonna have to try and find the full extended series uh it was it was quite good i really enjoyed it i gotta look into that because i'm kind of like you like i'm not a big video game guy like i'm not a home video game guy you know what i mean i don't have like like my kids got you know, a gaming system and stuff, but I'm not big on it. And I never was. Um, but I, when I was younger, um, I would always go to the arcade and play the games there. And so there's, again, you know me with my nostalgia, how much I like it. So recently, my six-year-old started to, uh, I can't remember how we got started on this. We were, we were talking about video games. And I'm like, I want to show you a video game. I got a video game for you. And we went onto YouTube. And I just Googled it and I, and I found all these old like gameplay, like you could see like Pac-Man and Miss Pac-Man. And it was just like this nostalgia flooding back for me. And he loves them. So like Galaxian 
and Donkey Kong and even Carnival and like these crazy video games that I used to love playing when I was a kid in the arcade are available on YouTube where you can watch the gameplay of them like as they were back in the 80s. And even things like pole position and like um, Hyper Olympics, where they got to run and like, you know, do all the uh, the different Olympic events. And he loves them. There's something about those video games from the 80s that is just, it's different. I even know, I know that the graphics aren't, you know, great by today's standards and stuff, but something about them that's just, it's engrossing. I, I, I got to watch that one for sure. That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, the last one I want to talk about is uh, it's a much newer series. It's by uh, Showtime. So if you're in Canada, you can watch it uh, through Crave On Demand, which mm-hmm. is how I saw it. Right. Uh, it's called Action. Not to be confused with the series uh, starring Jay Moore that was out a few years ago. It has nothing to do with that. This one is called Action. It's about – again, I'll just read it to you. It's about sports gambling. It's the uh, it's a documentary series that explores the legalization of sports gambling and its evolutionary uh, – its evolving impact – on the gambling community as the industry uh, in the industry it chronicles the lives of professional gamblers bookies and odd makers it again if you have any interest in sports gambling sports betting fantasy sports this is a crazy intense look at how everything is changing as technology is evolving and as gambling has become uh, legal in the US and how gambling is just this insane revenue generator worldwide uh, there's four one-hour episodes are out in the quote-unquote season one, and uh, it's just dropped recently. I hope they're going to continue to do it. It, it was outstanding. If you, I know Chris, you're a big uh, fantasy sports guy, yep. or at least you mm-hmm. used to be. I think you'll uh, you'll definitely. It focuses mostly on football, but they definitely talk about its uh, its impact on all sports. Especially, there's a uh, the third episode is all about fantasy sports, and it just opens your eyes to some of uh, the behind the scenes things about how gambling and fantasy sports is changing the way that we perceive sports. And how the the industry of sports is changing due to the gambling effects. It, it is just it's a crazy look. It's crazy because you've done all this stuff watching all these new documentaries. And I've literally watched 10 seasons of Bob Ross, The Joy of Painting in the last couple of weeks. So that's what I've done. Oh, and one other thing that I did was I took my son to a, uh, uh, like it was like a comic book and sports card show. And two things, I was able to find something for you, my friend, another gift that's going to be coming. Uh, you would give me a list of some Batman comics that you're trying to add to your collection. And I was able to find Batman 568 for you. So I'll, I'll get that off to you as soon as I can. And then I also got Yancey a gift. I found him something. I don't want to give it away, um, but I'm going to mail it to him and he's just going to lose his mind. It's just something so, so, so cool. Once he gets it, then I'll, I can mention it on the air. But uh, until then, are you ready to get started with this week's topic? Oh, absolutely. My absolutely. Okay, here we go. I mean, we love him, we hate him, we agree, we disagree. Freddie Mercury is the greatest singer who, who ever was. He is the greatest singer that ever will be. Some of the things in Freddie Mercury's real life were uh, possibly X-rated. <laughs> there is no way Rocky was a better movie than Taxi Driver. I love this idea. Probably the greatest film that's ever made. And I just picked it on a whim. And we could have a couple beers and we could play Escape from the Death Star. Walking in a winter wonderland. I try to pick something Christmas. This is a Fargan trick question! Okay, so this week I was my turn to nominate a film, so I decided to go back to 1987, as I am wont to do, and um, I've mentioned this uh, movie on the podcast numerous times, and so I felt it was time that we kind of went back and, and, and took a look at it and talked about it, and that is uh, one of the biggest, most infamous movies of all time uh, in terms of being a box office bomb, and that's 1987's 
Ishtar. It the movie bombed like crazy, and I'm pretty sure you're, you're gonna, you know where you're going to come at it. For, for, we'll see. Um, but maybe I'll just throw it to you. I made you watch this movie. Um, I think you had maybe seen it before once. But uh, if you just want to just give me your impressions of Ishtar, and then we'll start digging into the movie itself. Derek, uh, what do you think of Ishtar? All right. So I think I mentioned this at the end of the last episode. Mm-hmm. When uh, when I was a youngster, one of my best friends, his brother was manager at a movie theater near our house. And he used to let us go into the movies for free oh, uh, wow. on opening weekends because it was so busy. He knew he could sneak a few people in and it wouldn't affect his numbers and it was all good. But we had to wait till the movie started. And I can distinctly remember – Ishtar was one of the movies he snuck us in to see. So you and saw it in the theaters I, in 87. I saw it in the wow. theater. Now this, what movie, what year did it come out? 87? 87. Yeah. Okay. So I would have been uh, 13 or 14 years old at the time. And I can remember, all I can remember is that I didn't care for it. I didn't, I heard it was supposed to be a comedy. I didn't find it funny. Uh, I didn't like it. And over the years, I've tried my best to forget it. But last week, you nominated it or the last time we did our podcast, you nominated it. And I thought, okay, I know that you've had to sit through a lot of movies you didn't care for, mm-hmm. some of which Yancey recommended, some of which I've recommended. So I thought, you know what? Turnabout is fair play. I will give this an honest chance. It's been 30 years since I've seen it. My tastes have evolved. I'm a more mature person. Sure. Maybe there was a lot of quote unquote adult humor that I didn't get as a 13 year old because I have found a lot of movies I've gone back to. I can appreciate on a different level now that I've got some distance and some maturity. This was not the case. I think the best way I can sum up this movie is it was terrible. This movie was so bad. There was no redeeming qualities. I had to watch it in two parts because I couldn't sit through the whole thing in one sitting. I watched about an hour and I'm like, okay, I need a break. I had to stop. I had to, you know, have a snack, have a pop, use the bathroom, just sure. like shake my head, splash water on my face. I'm like, it can't be this bad. Some, there's got to, something's got to happen. Maybe like, maybe I don't remember the part where the aliens show up and shoot things or the, there's an explosion. Like, I don't know, maybe something's going to happen. No, I came back to watch the second half. It was every bit as bad as the first half. I didn't like the characters. I didn't like the story. I thought the acting was terrible. I, I, there was nothing, I found nothing about this movie that I could say, well, at least this was decent. No, no, that's a lie. The supporting actor guy, the guy who played the CIA agent, uh, Groden, oh, Charles no, Groden, uh, Charles Groden. Yes. Yeah. He's awesome. Yeah. He was the only thing he's good that I everything. found yeah. palatable in this yeah. movie. Now, again, he's got a small part. It's yeah. a supporting role. He probably got a reasonable paycheck to do it. It's nothing special. He usually does a very good job. And I think given what he had to work with. I had no problem with his performance. The rest of the movie was awful. Just awful. I can't I can't think of anything good to say about it. Please feel free to ask me any questions you want about sure. it, but I, I I I just don't understand why you wanted me to watch this movie. I don't understand how you think this is this was worth the two hours of my life. Well, and the thing is, like, this is not the case where I, like, sometimes in the past on this show, I'll nominate a movie and I'm, like, really hoping that you would like it or Yancey would have liked it, like, you know, and I'd be disappointed if you didn't like That's not the case here. I understand. 
everybody, for the most part, most people hate this movie. And that's fine. I'm totally fine with that. I personally like this movie. Um, and we'll get into some of the reasons why. This is not the case of me trying to like convince you why it's good or like I'm, I'm shocked that you don't like it. It's more I just wanted to talk about it because I think it is a movie worth talking about because it is probably the biggest box office bomb of all time, or at least in people's minds. That's what they think, you know, maybe not monetarily. Um, so for me, um, I didn't see it in theaters. I first saw this movie on the movie channel in late 1987. And um, so for people, you know, in today's culture, there's like tons of stuff on TV and there's like Netflix and, you know, you've got all these access. But back back in the day, there was actually something called the movie channel. And you know what I'm talking about, right, Caveman? There, we, there was a, there was yeah, a, for there, sure. It was called the movie channel. And so we would have like our regular you know, TV stations like ABC, CBS, NBC, and a couple Canadian stations. And then there was the movie channel. And so I watched it on the movie channel. And it was I, like the precursor to HBO. Basically, that's a good, good comparison. And yeah. so that's where I first watched Ishtar. And I loved it right away. And as you know, like, I, I just, I like what I like. You know, I make no apologies about it. And you should apologize for this one, Chris. It's I, terrible. I, I, I know. I, I can't really defend it. But I mean, here goes a bit. I, uh, like, so I think, first of all, it's easy to get caught up in the politics surrounding this movie. I totally get it. I mean, there's the huge budget. It costs like $40 million to make this movie in like 1986 dollars, you know, when they filmed it. So, so I get it. You know, it's easy to look at it and go $40 million for this. You know, and there's the reports of the infighting on the set, especially between Elaine May, the director, and Isabella Janney. She was the, um, she played Shirasel, and um, and there was you know infighting with the lead actors and lots of creative differences. And then you look at Hoffman and Beatty, and you expect something different from those guys. But I'll give you this is my take on this movie. If you just take the movie for what it is, just a little quirky movie about two really, really bad singers. It can actually be a fun little movie to watch. And maybe a part of why I like it so much is that it's just so bad on so many levels. So let's break it down a little bit. Okay, shall we? Like some of yeah. the reasons why this movie is quote unquote bad. Okay, so starting with Elaine May, the director. And I like Elaine May. I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Elaine May. Now, I mean, she started out in Chicago with the Compass Players. And it was her and Mike Nichols that actually were in the Compass Players in Chicago. And they were both so good that they basically had to leave the group. And it wasn't even so much like they had to leave the group because like they were just so good. We want to do more bigger things. It was like the group basically saying to them, you guys have to leave. You're just too good. And Cave, if you remember when I used to live in Toronto, we used to go to Second City all the time. And the thing was, when, and I used to actually, I did a lot of, uh, I did some workshops at Second City you know, as well as going and watching the shows. But when you watch the shows, something like Second City, when you get like one performer or two performers who are just so much better than everybody else, it throws everything off, right? Yeah, yeah, for and, sure. And that was the case here. Like Nichols and May were so good. So they went and started up their own comedy team, Nichols and May. And that's what they called it. And it was just so different. And because they didn't just do traditional stand-up, like they would sit on these stools together on stage and basically improvise an entire set. And in a lot of ways, I think both the Compass Players and Nichols and May were the precursors to Second City. Now, Elaine May didn't do a lot of acting. I think she was in Enter Laughing and California Suite, but that was about it. And she was more of a writer. Like, she actually worked on Heaven Can Wait, which was an excellent, 
excellent film, Caveman, by the way. Never seen it. Oh, it's so good. I'll get you to watch it at some point. I, I gotta be honest. I'm not a big fan of Warren Beatty at the mm-hmm. best of times. And I get it. And, I understand. Yeah. But I've heard that Heaven Can Wait is outstanding. I've heard Reds is outstanding. Never seen either of those. Reds, um, Reds is good, but I think Heaven Can Wait will surprise you. I think you'll watch it and go, wow. Wow, this is not what I expected out of this. You know, it's 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 good. We'll we'll, we'll get you to watch that at some point. Um, but yeah, like I said, so she wrote on that movie, and and she actually did some rewrites for the script on Tootsie too. Um, and then her directing career was pretty much confined to she did a New Leaf where she directed Walter Matthau and herself, and then she did the Heartbreak Kid with Sybil Shepherd, and then I remember she tried this crime drama. Mikey and Nikki, and it just didn't really work. And then came Ishtar. And Ishtar basically knocked her out of Hollywood. <laughs> and, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and, but I think lost in all of this Ishtar stuff is the fact that Elaine May is actually, she's actually a really talented actress and writer. And her work with Mike Nichols was influential, like I said, hugely influential on an entire generation of actors that kind of came up in that underground comedy movement of the 60s and 70s. And if it wasn't for Nichols and May, I don't think there would have been a second city. Or, like, you wouldn't, Steve Martin, Bill Murray, a lot of the Laughing cast, none of those guys. Like, the, Nichols and May sort of, you know, helped facilitate those guys coming in. And I think Elaine May also broke a lot of barriers for women, especially Jewish women. And I think that kind of leads into a lot of the problems that were with Ishtar. The fact that Elaine May kind of had her roots in this, she was almost like, it's kind of hard to explain. It was like this unique kind of dry Jewish comedy, you know? And this movie, you know, was not like that. And there was a lot of creative differences, you know, and, and with Ishtar, obviously because of the lead actors, they wanted to play it more dumb. And so I, uh, creative differences really tore apart the creative process for the, this movie. You know, does, does that make sense? Do you understand where I'm coming from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was, because of that, there was a lot of advanced negative publicity. And say what you want about negative press, but man, when it comes to movies, it can have a huge impact. You know, if you look back at the really big box office bombs, they were all plagued by bad press during production, like Waterworld and Heaven's Gate and Bonfire of the Vanities, and of course, Ishtar. And they all suffered from problems that they had during production. If word gets out, that there's arguments about casting or the director does not getting along with the actors or it's over budget. Once that negative press starts to flow, the movie's usually sunk right out of the gate, you know, and it doesn't necessarily mean the movie's bad. It just means that people won't even give it a chance. So I just think that this movie came with so much baggage into theaters that people just didn't give it a chance. I think, unfortunately, if they, if people would have just taken it for what it was, going back to what I said originally, just a quirky little movie about a couple guys who are like, terrible singers you know i think that maybe if we looked at it through a different lens of just taking the movie at face value you know i think that people would look at it differently obviously not i mean in your case anyway because you just didn't like it either way right yeah so let me let me sort of uh try and unpack some of the yeah i threw a lot at you, there. you just yeah. dumped on me here <laughs> so i'll give you everything you just said fine great i assume it's accurate i have no reason to dispute it or deny it but coming into this movie this week, I didn't know any of that stuff. I knew that it was considered to be one of the worst movies ever. It had uh, uh, not done well financially. I uh, It wasn't until after I watched the movie. So after I watch a movie, no matter what the movie is, within the next day or two, I usually go to the IMDb and I read all the trivia. 
And so I did that with Ishtar. I finished watching it and I was like, wow, this movie was really bad. Let's see what some of the trivia is. And the trivia was plagued with all of the stuff you just talked about, how there were this, this infighting and that this person didn't get along with that person and the director this and the actress that. But I didn't know any of that when I was watching the movie and I still thought the movie was terrible. Um, I, I get what you're saying about how you know you, you want to try and almost watch it in a vacuum in the first time. Mm-hmm. Without any of that outside influence. And so I, I certainly – that was not the case. I, I, I obviously knew its reputation. But having been 30 years since I saw it last, 25 years, 30 years since I saw it last, I think I, I was trying to come into it with an open mind as much as possible. And yeah, I really – despite that, like I wasn't watching it going, this is the worst directing I've ever seen or this is the worst acting I've ever seen. I just thought it was a bad story. I, I found it was – um I, I don't know. It was hard to believe. Like, uh, I just found that there's so much of it happened, and I just thought, well, this is just dumb. Like, this doesn't make sense to me. Um, sure, there was the odd occasional bit where you thought, ah, I can see how that might be humorous, but not even like if something's funny, you're gonna laugh. Like, you're literally gonna laugh. But other times, you sort of look at it and you sort of want to just say to yourself, well, that's funny. You don't actually laugh, but you just acknowledge that. Yeah, that's funny. So there was a couple of scenes like that where I'm like, I didn't laugh, but I sort of went, yeah, okay, that's funny. Uh, yeah, I, I think one of the problems that they had, too, was with the lead actors and the fact that they got them to play against type, right? I mean, Warren Beatty, you said you're not a big fan of his. But one thing about him was, you know, I'm sure you maybe you know or don't know. At the time that this came out, he was probably, and maybe to this day, one of the most legendary ladies' man in the history of Hollywood, you know? So they take him. And they make him play against type as Lyle Rogers, right? This loser in love and this loser in life. And and that was a real problem for audiences. You know, they just couldn't accept Beatty in that type of role. And then you've got Hoffman, who's always, he's always been sort of this anti-leading man, right? Like, even if you think back to when, when he starred in his, really one of his first movies, his first movie was The Graduate, right? And I don't know if you've have you ever seen The Graduate. Or are you familiar yeah, with the movie? Okay, so it's yep. a great film, right? And that was originally written for a six-foot-tall, blonde, um, you know, good-looking jock, right? And so the fact that they cast this short little Jewish guy to, to play the role was just it was shocking, you know, in a way. But he pulled it off so, so well. But he's always been that kind of anti-leading man. So they take him in Ishtar and they make him, you know, they put him as, he's Chuck Clark, right? And he's supposed to be like all slick with the ladies. And he's got these, you know, so-called gang war background stuff going on. Like, remember, he's the hawk. And again, audiences just, they really had problems with this. They couldn't buy into it. It doesn't mean it's wrong or it doesn't work. It's, it's just that the casting worked against this movie right out of the gate too. So another thing but, from but sorry, yeah. let me interrupt you, Chris. I had no problem with the casting. Okay. Because, okay. Because I'm not a big fan of Warren Beatty, mm-hmm. I, I didn't really care if he was playing the ladies' man or the guy that was having the problem, you know, landing the lady. That didn't matter to me. And same with Dustin Hoffman. I'd seen him in enough stuff where I've enjoyed his performances. I know he's a versatile actor. Uh and again, maybe looking at it with today's lens, um, buying him as the the ladies' man. I know a lot of guys that are maybe not the best looking, they're not the tallest, the most handsome guys, but personality and charisma can go a long way and confidence. And I, I got that from his character that, okay, maybe that's what he's he's doing to be this, this ladies' man. I, that I had no issue with. 
Uh, I think to me, it was really just came down to the story, the dialogue, the story, the script. It just didn't work for me. I, I just had a hard time believing things would happen the way they happened. It just seems some of it just seemed too far fetched or too strange to me that I was just like, no, I'm I'm done. This 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 just isn't working for me. Well, and the, the thing is too, like. <laughs> I feel like in a lot of ways, this movie's a little bit ahead of its time. And, and let me just tell you why I'm going to say that. Because one of the favorite things, I think, for me was when American Idol first came out, especially like the first couple of seasons, not so much anymore. But one of the, my favorite parts about it was the terrible singers. Like the ones yeah. that were just so bad. That was, that was a big appeal of that show. They kind of went away from it, you know, in the last couple of seasons, right? But originally, like, that was one of the best parts of watching that show was because you get these people who think that they're great singers and they're just not. And I think that's what they tapped into with this movie. And and, and I do, I, I, I'm one of the first to admit that the movie is, is, is I really like the movie when they're, when they're doing the songwriting stuff and the singing, like it's just, yeah, that, I love that, that was, stuff. That stuff. That I just watched before I was like, I yeah, wish you would fun. go back to that. Yeah. Like you like that too, at least I, I could get, I get it. I mean, it was clear that these guys were a little older than you would expect characters to be doing that kind of thing. And they were clearly not as talented as they thought they were. So I, I could get <laughs> that. Awful. I could, I, yeah. I don't want to say I could relate to it cause I'm not a songwriter, but I could see how that was part of the character development that they almost had this like delusion that they were better than they were and that they just couldn't see it in themselves. They both thought they were the greatest. And when they, they did this sort of flashback scene early at the beginning where it's like, this is how they met five months ago. Um, you know, I, I could understand, okay, well now that I know where they're coming from, that makes sense to why they would take this crazy gig to go to Africa to play in this hotel or this lounge. But even that I was just, I don't know. It just it didn't work for me on so many levels. Well, I'm I, I'm one of the first to admit that, like I say, like I was getting into the 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 parts when they're singing and they're and they're doing that thing are just I love those parts. And then when it goes into Morocco and it goes off on a tangent with all the you know Shira Cell stuff and the CIA and all that stuff. That's where things are like, oh man, okay. Even at, at, when they finally get to the end of it and they're shooting at the helicopter, I'm like, okay, hey, I'm kind of done with this. And then I was just so glad at the end when it kind of tied things back when it. Kind of ended with them singing again because like that's to me the best part of the movie like some of the early part like and, and i get the you know criticizing this movie especially in the scenes where they go to morocco like i say it's corny it's stilted it's oversimplified i think but i think in some ways it's supposed to be like if you think about this movie along the lines of the old bob hope and bing crosby road to movies the, the concept's the same like Ishtar in a lot of ways is a total homage to those films and Hope and Crosby would always go and get themselves in all these crazy situations right and they'd always every single movie they'd always say how a woman will never get in the way of the plan and then of course a woman would come along and totally get them distracted and get in the way of the plan and and so like I but I, I understand the criticism of the movie from the Morocco standpoint you know and like I say I agree the movie's at its best when the, the guys are just singing the songs. Like they're the, they're the worst singer songwriters ever. And some of the songs, my God! So it's not even that they just have these terrible songs. Like they they so they recruited Paul Williams to write a lot of these songs. So Paul Williams, I don't know if you know Paul Williams. So no, he's, I don't he, know. Paul he's Williams. known more of a, of a songwriter. He was a very very famous songwriter. Um, 
Oh, I gave you that Smokey and the Bandit shirt. Remember that? I don't know if you've ever seen Smokey and the Bandit, but Paul Williams is in Smokey and the Bandit. He's the little tiny short guy that was with Paul McCormick. Okay. So that's Paul Williams. And and he was like known more, uh, less as an actor, although he was also in um, Phantom of the Paradise. I remember too. Oh, it was really dumb. But anyway, um, he's known more as a songwriter. Like he wrote Rainbow Connection. You know the okay from know, the Muppets, yeah, for the Muppets. You know, and he wrote lyrics for 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 TV shows like like the Love Boat. You know, like so he's known as a, as a song. Wait, Chris, you made a Love Boat reference? You're kidding me. I know, hard to believe. Um, so, uh, so who had the over and under on uh, how long's it been? Twenty five minutes? <laughs> yeah, they, they, they won. <laughs> um, so anyway, they got him to write these terrible songs, right? And the actors would rehearse and rehearse the songs because they wanted to make sure and get them just right. You know. Um, like I say, I, I I get where people are coming from. I'm not, I'm not defending the movie, saying it's a great movie or anything. I just, I really liked some of the parts when they were, like, singing some of these songs. When they sing in that nightclub and then Lyle, like, bangs the mic into Chuck's face. And, and when Chuck is singing to the old couple and the busboy, like, knocks into him. Like, everything is about, like, the singing's off key. The lyrics are bad. Like, everyone's bumping into them and stuff. Like, it's just all so, 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 so bad that, to me... It's good. Does that make any sense whatsoever? It, can something no. be so bad that it's good, or do no, you not buy crazy. into that? It's it's. I think you're trying to you're grasping at straws, man. You're you're looking for meaning where there is none. Um, can it not just uh, be entertaining though? Are you not entertained by like these bad no. singers that just sing so bad and like it's just entertaining no. at at that it, level? With, with Netflix and Crave and other on demand and the internet and YouTube and everything else at my fingertips, there are. A hundred better things I could have done with my two hours, but, uh, you know, I, I wanted to trudge my way through this and I did, I didn't care for it there. I, I really didn't find any redeeming qualities. This is not a movie I would ever recommend anyone watch unless I really had it out for them. And I was, and I figured they would believe me enough to give the two hours of their life. They would never get back. That's the only reason I would ever recommend this. Okay, There's, so- there was, Okay, that's right. So, what about the scene when when uh, when Chuck is playing for the old couple? And remember, even that it's just so bad. It's like they're not on their fiftieth wedding anniversary, not their fifty first or the fifty second. It's their fifty third because he because he says they've come back every year. It's now their fifty third. Yeah. And I told them I'd have a song for them. Well, now it's their fifty third, and then he sings that song. I'm leaving some love in my will to them. Uh, yeah, <laughs> like like even that, or even like some of the other little snippets of songs that they're they're trying to write these songs, like um like that a lawnmower can do all that. It's amazing, you know. Like ah, oh, I don't know some of the songs. They, I, and of course, of all the songs that they sang, you know. And I mean, they they did a couple covers like "Bridge Over Troubled Water" and things like that. No business like show business and that's strangers in the night. And that's Amore, of course, when he came into the the, the nightclub there and, and 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 got his passport and came in. Yeah, and. Yeah, just I don't know some of the like the half dot blues when they're in the middle of the desert and all this, just everything he even when they they go in the bar and they're meeting the girls and he's like I want to break off a pinch of you like just he's singing like shut up you're so bad, but the one song of all those songs that I love them all but the one song I love the best is Dangerous Business <laughs> when they're singing it the, the movie opens with it and then the final yeah. scene they make the deal with the Mir of Ishtar and the CIA. And it, they, they don't want money. They don't want power or control of the map. No, they want a gig where they can play their songs, right? <laughs> and so the Marines pack the place. And they, remember, they're they're playing the enthusiastic audience. And Charles Grodin, Charles Grodin, you're right. He is really good. 
And I, and I always remember him in that final scene. He's like, we have to actually back an album with these guys. <laughs> and then uh, they sing Dangerous Business. And then it fades to that, that record store window where their album is up there. Where, remember where they saw the Simon yeah, and Garfunkel the album? Yeah, saw the Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, I mean, from a, from a film construction point of view, I mean, I, got, I, th- I felt it was pretty heavy-handed in a lot of points where it's like – it felt to me like it was – uh, like a first year college student in a movie course who has to get their grade and 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 they would have maybe got a C minus on this. It was like they hit all the right notes, they hit all the buttons, they they did all the tropes, they hit all the archetypes. Uh, it was I found it was predictable. Um, you know, even that that framing. Uh, story framing where it was like at the beginning they look at the wall and they're like you know this our our album is every bit as good right. as the Simon and Garfunkel and it's <laughs> right. like well of course you knew by the end their album would be up there like it's it's uh, I don't know it was just too much on the nose for me I think I, I I'll give you that their uh, their songs were so bad in some cases you just had to laugh but for a movie that's that long the songs were such a small part. Like, I mean, they were a big part of the story, but they were a small part of the on-screen time that it didn't do it for me. There there were too many negatives, not enough positives. Yeah, and I get it. I remember going to my friends at the time and telling them how much I loved this movie. And they all thought I was clinically insane. And well, your friends were right. Yeah, I, I, but I really did enjoy it. And I've mentioned this many times before on the podcast. I love obviously those comedies from the 70s and 80s there's never been movies like them before or after to me there's something magical about the movies from that time and this is one of them for me like you know and the thing is with all the criticism that this movie has received over the years and rightly so i totally admit but there are some people who have actually come out as big fans of the movie and those include quentin tarantino and martin scorsese who both actually think this movie is very very good Believe it or not. And I mean, does that surprise you in any way? You're a big movie guy. Well, I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't. I think uh, it doesn't surprise me from the sense of, again, from a uh, 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 film student perspective, it sort of checks all the boxes. Mm -hmm. So I can get why someone like Tarantino, who um, often will reference older films as influence. You know, he's got the thing where he said, I didn't go to film school. I went to films. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I can see I can see that certainly a movie like this would 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 be in his wheelhouse. But a part of me also wants to think that maybe they've said those things for shock value. Oh, well, I know everybody else hates this. I'm going to say I love it. And that will not that Martin Scorsese needs the press. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think I think sometimes people will uh, will will latch on to something just to be contrary about it. Oh, everybody else hates this? Well, I'm going to come out and say that I liked it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe that could very well be the case. I don't know. I think that uh, Tarantino is a is a massive film buff. And I think that, you know, maybe l- later on he went back and watched this movie and was like, hey, what's the deal? This is actually not that bad. I actually kind of enjoyed it. And um, and like I said, there's there's a lot of things against it, going against it. And I understand that. Um, but for me, I just, I, I just, I always liked it on just a, uh, just a personal level, uh, maybe because I watched it on the movie channel when I was younger, and I just, I don't know, I always connected with this movie in some way. I don't know why. I just, I always just kind of liked it. I just enjoyed it, and um, and I used to watch a lot. I, you know, until now, whenever I just rewatched it for for this, um, I hadn't seen it in probably twenty five years. 
you know, it was just something that I used to watch a lot. Um, and I would force all my friends, even in university, like, we got to watch this, we got to watch Ishtar. And I'm like, oh my God, this movie's terrible. <laughs> like, I was, I was like the only one. And I just kind of always like, kind of, it was like my, the cross I had to bear <laughs> that I always enjoyed Ishtar and nobody else did. And, and like I said, so I didn't come into this trying to convince you to like it. I know. Trust me, I've gone my whole life with everybody hating Ishtar but me. And it, it, nothing ever changes, and I don't expect to change people's minds. But I just uh, like you to know that, that that I enjoy it, you know, for what it is. I enjoy the quirky scenes where they're singing, and like even the scene where 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 um, Beatty's driving down the road, and he's he's supposed to be driving an ice cream truck because he just loses every job he has because all he wants to do is be a, a, a singer, and he's terrible. And he's driving the ice cream truck, and the kids are running after him. And instead of him pulling over and selling him ice cream, he's singing a song right and it's like this terrible song like hot fudge love yeah and he's like cherry ripple kisses lip smacking back slapping perfectly delicious and then his wife is just like she's just like distraught because she's so sick of this of him just writing and singing these terrible songs and carol kane is the girlfriend of uh Hoffman and she's so great and she's the same way she's like you suck you can't do this you know and then I don't know just the fact that these two guys they they get to at least chase their dream and get a little piece of it because even if it's in Morocco they get to sing a concert and and then it's so funny because Shira Sel Isabella Janney uh, is like I love them they're wonderful <laughs> like, I don't know there's just something about it that's just I like this movie I enjoy it for what it is. I don't have for for forty million dollar movie in nineteen eighty six dollars. It's terrible, right? I mean, you know what? What are you doing? But just as a small little quirky film, that's the level that I enjoy it on. I always have enjoyed it on, and I, and I always will. I, I like this movie. I don't know. It is one of my things. Okay. So. Well, I mean, I'll give you that. I I I mean, I I'm certain. I'm certain there are little quirky movies that I enjoy that uh, other people would not. Maybe not things that have this kind of uh, reputational baggage attached to them, but I'm, I'm sure there are some. Yeah, and that's a really good point because it's like I was mentioning earlier. This movie just has so much baggage. It's like, how could you like this movie? This is terrible. Everybody knows this is one of the worst movies ever made. Well, I don't know. I just like it. So it is what it is. You know what I mean? I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm, I'm going to embrace it, and, I, and, and I, I do like it. There's lots of other movies I like that people don't like, but... But you're right. This movie does come with a lot of baggage. So I think for that reason, it's hard to like, right? One of the things you mentioned earlier uh, that I just want to come back to real quick was how – and I read this in the the trivia after I watched it – was that it was in the style of the the buddy comedies, the Road to uh, movies with Bob Hope. Yeah, that's what I was mentioning. Yeah, yeah. And again though, I think for me, those movies are – were ahead of my time. Like I'd never seen any of them. I know of them. Mm-hmm. I know that they've been parodied. Um, there's a lot of like TV shows and movies that have sort of done homages to them. And apparently this is influenced by that kind of movie. But for me, not having that contextual background, uh, it doesn't help me. Right. Like if, if, if they're relying on my understanding of what those kinds of movies are like in order to enjoy this, well, I don't have that. So maybe that's part of the reason I don't enjoy this movie. Well, and I think sense. the longer we go, the, the the fewer new viewers that watch this movie are going to have that that background. So I think it becomes even more difficult for younger audiences to to connect with the film in a way that you have that so other few people have. And I think a lot of the the, the, the comedy, especially when they go to Morocco and stuff, is very stilted and it, and it's very – 
contrived, like even the stuff with the the blind camel and the, the the merchant named Muhammad, and you know all that stuff. I get it. For me, it's more the the songwriting stuff, yeah. the singing and songwriting stuff. I just I don't know. There's something about it that's just endearing to me. I find it quirky. I find it fun, and and I enjoy it. And then when it gets back to it again, the movie goes off the rails a bit for 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 quite a bit there. And I and I get it. It's 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 kind of dumb. Um, but when it comes back and then they're singing again, they're singing like, you know, some of those songs when they're singing to the Marines. God, their songs are terrible. They're just awful. And when years later, when I would watch American Idol, I'd realize like this is just like Ishtar. This is maybe this is why I liked Ishtar so much. I just like this stuff. I just find it, you know, funny and quirky and weird and I don't know. So, so what you're saying is you like to laugh at people who are untalented and uh, put themselves out there with their dreams and just aren't good at it. Yeah, I, I guess. And, and and I mean, you are a terrible, terrible person, Chris. <laughs> but isn't that one of the things that made early uh, American Idol so popular? Like, I wasn't the only one. Other people like laughing at those people. It wasn't even that I was laughing at them because because in this movie, I'm not laughing at those characters. There's something about it that's endearing in some way. There's something that's endearing about even if you're crappy at something, following your dream, and, and and like these guys, they lose their their wives, their girlfriends, they lose their jobs, they lose everything, because that's their dream. That's what they want, and they chase it. And, and you know what? Most people in life don't chase their dream. So I would say that these characters are more endearing for that reason, because they're at least willing to chase their dream. You know, they, 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 there's a line late in the movie that's like, at least we didn't lead lives of quiet desperation. Yeah. And I know it seems corny and stupid, but in some ways it resonates. I just, I don't know. There's something about the movie that just resonates with me, always has. At least they had the guts to to do what they want to do. And you know what? Everyone else goes nine to five, punching a clock, you know, working, you know, in an office and everything. And these guys are going all over Morocco and just singing songs for people. And who cares? They're 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 following their dream. So I I think in a lot of ways that's okay. And and maybe that's why it relates to me. I don't know. This has been a very cleansing episode for me <laughs> to be able to talk about these things. I don't know. This is. I don't know. I think it's. Uh, there's there's things about the movie I like. The more I think about it, the more I even like the movie even more. So okay. So so let's make a deal then. You've now had your uh, your your opportunity to gush to the world about yep. why you enjoy this movie. Mm-hmm. And sure, we like what we like. And I've I've already come to know that there are things you like that I won't. And there are things you like that there's nothing I can say that will change your mind. Mm-hmm. And I assume Ishtar is just going to fall into that category. How about we agree never to talk about this after this episode? <laughs> That's fine. I'm perfectly fine with that. Okay. And I'll okay. just watch it on my own as I always have. It's been years since I've done that anyway. So I will just continue to watch it on my own and enjoy it on my own level. And we'll never speak of Ishtar again. Is that is that fair? Love it. That's fair. Okay. We have an agreement. Okay. Time now to have some fun with Caveman. Okay, my friend. Over to you. Uh, you're going to be taking uh, this segment away. So uh, what do you got for us? Okay, so uh, Ishtar is a movie that takes place primarily in the desert. It There's does. There's a, a long sequence <laughs> where the characters are on a blind camel mm-hmm. wandering aimlessly through the desert. Right. The worst so, part of the movie, but yes. Yes. So, and I believe even the poster of the movie has the two guys trying to lead the blind camel through the desert. Yeah, they're pulling it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, uh, going with the desert theme, I've come up with some trivia questions where the answer to every question is a movie that takes place in part or in all in the desert. Okay. 
Okay. So I'll, I'm going to read you the questions and all you have to do is tell me the name of the movie. Sounds good. And, and the, 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 the thing that ties them all together is that they all take place in part or in whole in a desert. In a desert. Okay. okay. I'll do my best. All right. So uh, no trick questions in this. They're all pretty straightforward. I think, I think you're going to do pretty well. The only thing I think you're going to have trouble with is some of these movies are uh, take place after 1991. So oh, then I'm going to be in trouble. But I'll do yeah. my best. Yeah. But I tried to make I try to make them, you know, pretty, pretty uh, well-known movies where I could. So. All right. You ready? Yes. Go ahead. All right, here we go. OK. This 2015 film that won six Academy Awards can best be summed up as a two hour car chase through the post-apocalyptic desert. I'm going to go with, I remember when this movie won a whole bunch of awards and I heard about it, but I never watched it. Is it Mad Max Fury Road? Yes. Yes, Yes, it is. Oh, yes. I remember. It was actually nominated for 10 Oscars and it won six of them. Yes. I think I've talked about this on this, about that movie on this podcast with you and Yancey before. So, yeah, good one. Have you seen the movie? No, I have not. Of course not. Okay. Well, we'll we'll come back to that on yeah. another episode then because it was excellent. But I love the Oscar. All right. So. All right. Good one. Okay. Next one. This 2004 remake, in this 2004 remake, Dennis Quaid and Hugh Laurie are among survivors of a plane that crashes in the desert who work together to rebuild a new plane. And in the 1965 film yes. of the same oh. name – Starred James Stewart, Richard Attenborough, Peter Finch, yeah. Ernest Borgnine, and George Kennedy. Can you name the movie? Flight of the Phoenix? Yes. 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 All right. Okay. Would you have got that if I hadn't given you the people who were in the original? I Yes, because I remember when Dennis Quaid did this remake. I remember when it came out and said, oh, that's a remake of a movie. I know that one. Nice. I remember it. Uh, yeah. I've seen the remake. I have not seen the original. I, I enjoyed it. All right. In this 2005 adaptation of a Clive Cussler novel, adventure hero Dirk Pitt, played by Matthew McConaughey, searches for a lost Civil War battleship in the deserts of West Africa. I have no idea. All right. It is called Sahara. Oh, I remember that. Oh, yeah. Okay. I've read the book. I've seen the movie. I haven't seen it, but I remember. remember, Yeah. Really enjoyed the book. The movie was not quite as faithful an adaptation as everyone was hoping. Um, I don't know if you've read anything by Clive Cussler, but he's a prolific author who's written dozens of novels featuring this character, Dirk Pitt. He's basically like a modern day Indiana Jones. And I've read a bunch of his novels. They're very entertaining. And the hope was that McConaughey would star in this first one. It would be a big hit. And he had this huge franchise on his hands. And unfortunately- Yeah, just the movie was not great. I mean, it's fun, but it wasn't great. It, uh, I think it basically just made enough money to cover its costs. And they went, yeah, we're not going to do any more of these, which I think was unfortunate because I liked uh, McConaughey in the role. But I just think that they veered too far away from the source material and the movie was a little hokey by the end of it. But Movies that, anyway. uh, that take place in the desert obviously don't do well, apparently. Well, some of them do. We'll get to some of the more successful okay. ones as we're on the list here. Okay. Uh, this, this Please is a, be a star. Please be a star. This, no, no. Okay. This, is, this one's sort of a gimme for you. Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner are together oh, again yes. in yeah. this sequel to their 1984 hit, Romancing the Stone. Name the sequel. Jewel of the Nile. There you go. I like that movie a lot, actually. I liked, I liked the original and I liked the sequel. 
So, I've yeah, never seen good. the sequel. I've it seen Romancing the Stone a bunch of times, but not recently. Yeah, no, Jewel and I was good because the Jewel and I is actually a person. I remember that. It was really good. Oh, well, hey, spoiler alert. I just said I hadn't seen it. Oh, sorry. All right. Uh, next question. This one, I think, is a gimme for you, too. This 1984 David Lynch film oh, adapts yes. a Frank Herbert novel yep. where yep. desert warriors fight for control of spice. Supporting actors in this film include Patrick Stewart, Sting, Dean Stockwell, and Max von Sydow. Yeah. And it's also like uh, like Ishtar. It was a massive bomb. And it was Dune. And man, it was indeed bombed. Dune. Yeah. Now, Dune has since been remade. There was a made-for-TV miniseries in the mid to late 90s, and it had uh, – William Hurt had a pretty significant role in it. It was quite good. It was very faithful. I've read the book. It was very faithful to the book. And apparently, um, they are remaking it again. I Again, I want to say it's the same guy that did the new Blade Runner sequel. Uh, the Blade Runner 2049. Uh, I can't think of the director's name. French gentleman. He did uh, The Arrival. Um, uh, but yeah, apparently he's redoing Dune yet again. So, hmm. um, you know, if again, I've read the book. It's quite good. That 1984 version was pretty wacky. So hopefully if they're going to remake it, they stick close to the source material and maybe it'll find an audience. Yeah, and so disappointing because the, the, that book was so big and so many people loved the, the, the book. When the movie came out, they were, they were so disappointed. You yeah. Know, it was crappy. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, again, I think this one's another gimme for you. This 1962 epic features an English officer who successfully unites the uh, unites and leads diverse Arab tribes during World War One in their fight against the Turks. Oh, it's uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, Peter O'Toole. I, I figure I had to throw that in there. I yeah. couldn't do a trivia segment with desert movies and not throw right. Lawrence of Arabia oh, in there. Such a good movie. All right, this one's a little tougher because okay. it's a little newer. Okay. Oh, yeah. In this 1999 adventure film, mm-hmm. Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weiss are part of an archaeological dig that accidentally uncovers more than they bargained for while searching for the ancient city of Hamanoptera. I know this, and I've actually seen this movie. It's The Mummy. It is. Yes, I've actually. The, I didn't really like it very much. Really? No, okay. It was, it was all right. I, I liked the first one, the 1999 one. Uh, the second one was just okay. And the third one was terrible. Yancey and I mentioned in previous episodes, too, about the horrific uh, CGI effects in The Scorpion King. And that was yeah. like a spinoff of that, right? Yeah, it was the second. Yeah. Well, so the second one, I believe, was called The uh, the Mummy 2, The Scorpion King. And it had terrible special effects. And then they actually did a Scorpion King movie yeah, that spinoff. Was and it actually wasn't so bad. I mean, The Rock... I, I got to admit, guilty pleasure. I like The Rock. I think he's a great entertainer. Uh, you, he reminds me of Schwarzenegger in the sense of in the 80s, when I went to see a Schwarzenegger movie, you sort of knew what you were getting into right. when you bought your ticket. You knew he wasn't going to win an Oscar for best performance, but you knew you were going to have fun. And I find The Rock, it's the same thing. I go in, I know what I'm getting with The Rock movie. And I found that the actual movie, the Scorpion King movie, that would that would you know it was middle of the road it was decent I had fun I wouldn't necessarily recommend it but it wasn't terrible but the mummy two the the one where that character first appears yeah it was pretty bad and the CGI was still a little 
uh, rough around the edges and it just looks bad. It does not hold Was up. that the one where they did the CGI, the full CGI of The Rock and it just looked like, oh, it looked terrible. Yeah, it looked terrible. Oh, it was like awful. a scorpion, a little yeah. scorpion body with The Rock's face on it. Yes, it was just, oh, so bad. Yeah, okay. it was pretty bad. Yeah. All right. Uh, last, last question I got for you, okay. last but not least. Uh, okay. This one, two drag performers and a transgendered woman travel across the desert to perform their unique style of cabaret in this 1994 film. It stars Hugo Weaving, who was in The Matrix, Guy Pierce, who was in L.A. Confidential, and Terrence Stamp, who was in Superman 2. Name the movie. I was going to – I was thinking – oh, no. I was thinking it was um, Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, but it's not. And it's I not. remember – oh, I can't remember the name of the movie because I remember Terrence Stamp seeing – I didn't see this movie, but I remember seeing like the ads for it and stuff and thinking, Terrence Stamp, that's the guy from Superman 2. Why has that guy not worked more? You know, but I can't remember the name of the movie. It escapes me right now. That's a great question. What is it? The answer is The Adventures of Priscilla, yes, Queen of Queen the of Desert. Queen of the Desert, yes. Oh, that's right. I remember that. It is so good. It is. This is one of those movies where. Terrence, I, I heard Terrence Stamp was like fantastic in oh, that movie. Oh, so good. What an so actor. Good what an this. actor. He was so um, good in Superman 2. Yeah. The When I saw this, um, it was on one of the movie channels, funnily enough. So I was at university in the mid-90s, and um, I remember – I was staying at my cousin's place for a weekend. He had gone away. I was staying at his place to babysit his dog, and he had the pay channels. Of course, I didn't have cable television in my dorm, and so I got the chance to see all these movies over the weekend. And this was one where I sort of joined it halfway through, and I, I knew nothing about it. had never heard of it, and I was fascinated by these characters in the Australian desert outback, and, and they were like you know, these drag performers putting on this show, and there were musical numbers, and I was like, what am I watching? But I couldn't look away, and I thought, Wow, this is great. And then the next day it was on again. So I made sure to watch it from the beginning. And I was just like, this movie, I couldn't believe how much I enjoyed it, how great it was. And then, of course, in the, the years to come, the cast all went on to, to these huge movies like Hugo Weaving. Never heard of him before. Suddenly he's in The Matrix and he's in The Lord right. of the Rings. And Guy Pierce, never heard of him. He's in L.A. Confidential, which goes on to win a bunch of Oscars. And you're like, who are these? And then Terrence Stamp, I knew from Superman, too. But obviously, like you said, hadn't seen him in 15 years. And you're just like. Wow, this movie is quite good. I remember having to go out and I went out and bought it on DVD. So I'm like, this is one of those ones that it's it's got a lot of great lines. It's got a lot of great performances. I think it was underrated because it was not a North American film. It, it didn't really have the marketing that you would associate with today's big box office films. But it's one of those ones that it was so good that people were talking about. It. And when I worked at Blockbuster Video, this was one of the ones that people would rent quite frequently or they would ask about. And uh, if you haven't seen it, I, I would strongly recommend you give it a chance. I think you'd really enjoy it. Yeah, no, I've heard good things. Another movie that just comes to mind when you talk about the desert. Do you, have you ever seen Tremors? Yes. Uh, that was pretty I saw good. the first one. Uh, I know they did a bunch of sequels, and I, heard I haven't they were seen it. But sequels, the first yeah. one was was quite good. It was it was a pretty simple premise that they actually pulled off really well. Yeah, I think Kevin I'm, Bacon's in the first one. Is Kevin he? Bacon is, and um, and and Fred Ward, who is also in um, in Remo Williams. Remo Williams, yes, yeah. oh, which I love. Um, I remember thinking these giant worms that go under the desert and then come up mm -hmm. and kill people, like whatever. And then when I watched, it, I was like, this movie's actually really good. And, and it had the dad from Family Ties, and he was right. in all the sequels. Yes, yes, it was. The stories yeah. became about his character in the later movies. Very cool. So it's a great topic. Um, the, the the part of the movie in Ishtar where they go in the desert is like the weakest part of the movie. I wasn't trying to convince, like I said, just to go back. I'm not trying to convince you that Ishtar was good. 
I'm not trying to make you come over to my, my side of liking it. It just wanted to explain some of the reasons why, why I enjoy it and why I think it's quirky. Um, but uh, next next show now, you've got to give me one of your movies. So uh, do you have have one in the hopper here that i got to watch and we're going to come back and review? What do you think? Uh, yeah, I have I have one. I think this is a, a good uh, coming full circle from where we started with. I'm nominating Iron Man, the first movie oh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe okay. from 2008. Robert Downey Jr. This is the first one. This is the one that started it all. It stars Robert Downey Jr., directed by Jon Favreau. This was the one where they said, hey, let's see if we can do an actual serious movie about comic book characters – and at the time, Iron Man was very much like a B-list or C-list character. If you didn't, if you weren't a real comic book guy, mm-hmm. um, you probably didn't really know much about Iron Man. You, if someone said like, "Hey, I like Spider-Man," "I like the X-Men," you were like, "Okay, I've heard of them." But you went Iron Man, you're like, "Who the heck is Iron Man?" And that was part of the reason that they started with this first movie is they they thought, well, if it's a flop, he's sort of a B character, so we're not really losing anything. But as it turned out, it was a huge hit, an unexpected hit, and it launched. A series of 22 movies that ended this weekend with Avengers Endgame. Like it, it is the one that kicked everything off. And I think it just very completely set the tone, set the mood, set the style. It was the start of everything. So I want you to go back and watch okay. this one, Iron Man from 2008. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. And uh, we'll talk about it next time. I will definitely go back and watch it. I find it interesting that you say that that's the one that kind of kicked things off. Because, I mean, like in terms of comic book movies, I mean, obviously Superman was in 1978. But even Spider-Man was in 2001, 2002, whenever it came out. Like, didn't that start it? Like, I thought Iron Man kind of built on that. But you're saying Iron Man was the first one in the Marvel Comics universe sort of world, right? Yeah, think of it like, um, again, we can talk about this more in the next episode, but Marvel Comics at the time had been going through some financial difficulties and they were selling off their properties to various companies. They sold off some to Universal, some to Sony, some to Paramount. And so this was the first step in sort of bringing everything back under one umbrella and demonstrating that Marvel was a brand that you could bank on. And I think the gamble has more than paid off and again let's talk about it more next week yeah we will we this will, is where you sure. start this is the first okay. one I will and do that. uh give it a chance it's got a huge cast robert downey jr gwyneth paltrow jeff bridges uh terrence howard um there's a lot of cameos from actors where you're gonna say oh i know that guy oh i know that girl um i again it's in my opinion it's quality through and through I hope you enjoy it, but let's let's come back next time and talk about it. And then, like we mentioned earlier, like like when we when I, if I'm going to go back and watch all of the Marvel Comics universe, is it best to start chronologically, like with this one? So, yes. are we starting in the right place? Yes, or? absolutely. Okay, I, I thinking I was thinking that long term. I'm cool. hoping you enjoy this, and if you do, this is the right jumping in point. There's some arguments to be made that hey, some of the other movies take place like I think this one's supposed to take place in 2008, the year it was made. There are a couple of the movies that are supposed to take place before 2008 right. that were actually filmed later. But I think if you start with this one, you're going to start where everybody else started and you'll you'll get a sense of of how it kicked off and we'll go from there. Sounds good. So, yeah, I'll go back and I'll watch Iron Man and we'll, we'll see how this goes. I'm, I'm kind of excited in a way because, like I say, I haven't seen any of those movies. So 
now I can at least dive in and, and see what they're all about. So that's awesome. If you want to reach out to Derek, you'll find him on Twitter at Amaron underscore DM. You can find me at C McBrien. And again, as I mentioned before, you can go to popgojaworld.com and find all of our contact information there and reach out to us. Until next time, when we're going to come back and review Iron Man, this should be interesting. Uh, this is Chris McBrien for Derek Myers saying, thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. We'll be right back.